to episode 87 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hatfield. And on today's show, we have one of my running idols. I'm a little bit nervous, actually. We've got the amazing Rob DeCostella, true Aussie icon. So uh, Deeks has got an incredible list of achievements. He's a four-time Olympian, two-time Commonwealth gold medalist, world marathon champion, uh, Australian of the Year. Uh, he's headed up the Indigenous Marathon Project for over a decade now. He runs his own health food brand. I'm just tired thinking about it. Uh, and, and he also still holds the Australian record for the marathon, which he set in 1986 at the Boston Marathon, 207.51. So we'll discuss why that hasn't been beaten in many, many years now. Uh, but first, I'd just like to thank our podcast partners, Goo Energy, Ranala, Basecamp Altitude, Gaimia Allied Health Centre, Sydney Brewery, Precision Hydration, Fractal Performance Headwear, and Raid Light. Uh, so thank you, guys. Make sure you get onto our uh, podcast show notes and, and grab some discounts from the, the partners there. And now, without further ado, we'll uh, get Deke onto the show. Thank you. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to Running Matters Podcast, Rob DeCostella. How are you, Deke? I'm good, thanks, Paul. Uh, going well for an old fellow. I'm still still upright, breathing, and going forward, which is good. <laughs> that's that's the key, mate. I want to get straight into the uh, the important stuff. So I've, I've based my entire pre-race hydration strategy on the rumor that you used to have a couple of beers the day before a marathon. <laughs> Please tell me this is true, and someone hasn't stitched me up here. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I had a pretty relaxed approach um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having one or two beers. Uh, it's probably the, you know, sort of the the five, six, seven and eight beers that may, may do you a little bit of damage, but um, I think one or two is absolutely fine. Um, I remember um, the night before my Boston uh, marathon when I ran my two, uh, 207, um, the, the sponsors... Uh, John Hancock took me out for for dinner, and we had this you know beautiful dinner, and and um, I had a beer uh, with my meal, and and um, the the sponsors had paid a fair bit of money to to bring me over and put me up, and and the uh, the elite race organizer uh, Pat Lynch told me later that uh, he was absolutely horrified that here I was having a, a beer the night before this big marathon. Uh, but Pat said to to the sponsor, he said, "Look, don't worry. You know, he's he's an Australian. They all drink beer." <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, it, it worked. It worked perfectly. It worked perfectly. And I've got a uh, a couple of listener questions that have come in, and I'll, and I'll get started with one straight off the bat. This is actually coming from uh, Pheidippides. So, is the human body really suited to running forty two point two kilometres deep? Well, it's um, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think it does uh, a fair bit of, of trauma and, and damage uh, to you, um, and it's definitely one of those those uh, spirit spirit and mind over over body type experiences. Um, you know, I think we've we've evolved to be great distance runners, um, but I don't know that uh, running as hard and as fast as what the elite guys are, are doing. Especially, I mean, you know, I I was fairly fairly big for a marathon runner, so the the damage and trauma that I inflicted upon myself was was pretty pretty horrific. 
uh, some of the lighter distance runners, some of the lighter marathon runners, and even you know talking to a lot of the elite female marathon runners, they seem to bounce back and recover much quicker than than what I did. Mm. Um, but um, you know we, we are we are capable of doing incredible things. Uh, it's it just I think comes down to your preparation and uh, and how often you do it. Certainly. You know, I could never run more than about three marathons in a 12-month period mm. uh, because I think they, they are just um, so so damaging in the short term to your body. Um, you know, in the long term, I mean, I, my body seems to be reasonably fine. Uh, you know, my, my, my toenails and my toes are pretty, pretty ugly and smashed up uh, and my knees get a little bit sore these days. But I'm, you know, sort of heading towards my mid-60s and I'm still getting out and, and jogging most most days most morning so yeah. um i think you know we we can get through incredible things if we have the commitment and the drive and the passion and also the intelligence to do a proper preparation yeah and we'll get to that point i've got a got a quote from you there are no shortcuts be patient and look long term it's foolish that if you do a little more and faster you'll get better than the rest it ignores the fact that you must train at your optimum level and not your maximum level consistency is the secret to improvement and success. Do you, do you think the most runners look for progression rather than consistency in their training? And is this where our high injury rates come from in running? Um, look, yeah, I mean, um, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a runner, you're going to get injured. Um, you know, so if you're a swimmer, you're going to get wet. Um, if you're a boxer, you're going to get hit. If you're a runner, if you're, a runner you're going to get injured. Uh, if you're not getting injured, then you're not training hard enough. Okay. Um, but but we've got to be able to to manage the uh, the injuries and minimise the risk and and make sure that we do absorb as much of the the quality training that we that we have to put in. Um, but you know, sort of, I think injuries are a part of the the whole the whole scheme of things. Um, longevity and consistency, I think, are really important for endurance athletes, mm. and and you know, I think that was one of the, the great attributes that I had was that I had a, an ability to be able to uh, sustain and 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 with with sustain um, incredibly high volumes and qualities of work. Um, but you know, sort of, um, if you you know, I, I never had a day off. Really, uh, unless unless I was injured or, or sick, um, and I think you know, sort of people who have periods where they stop running completely and then and then start up again, um, you know, I, I had more injuries when I when I backed off after I retired yeah. and stopped training twice a day mm. and started training a, a little bit infrequently, you know, sort of. Um, so I think when you're training at a at a high level <clears throat> consistently, your body gets used to it. And um, and I think that that helps to to minimise the injury. So certainly the fluctuations in in training load that I, I think can can trigger trigger a lot more of the injuries and problems. Yes, that's that's great, fantastic. Um, on, on the on the same note, um, as a chiro, I see a ton of stress based injury in kids. How do we change the mindset from short term success to longevity and consistency? in order to save these kids from injury and I guess see greater performance later in life? Well, it really comes down to, um, I think, a duty of care that, that coaches and parents have. Um, and, and, you know, none of us want to 
want to contribute to the ugly parent or the ugly coach. Um, I think at a young age, it's relatively easy to 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 get um, good performances out of out of young kids, and you just need to you know do a lot of anaerobic and quality type training. Um, but you know, I think we have a, a real duty of care when their when their bones are still growing, um, when their their anatomy is is still a little bit uh, vulnerable, to to be gentle and make sure that we hold them back. Um, you know, kids left to their own devices will often often go crazy, and and overdo it. And I think um, you know we we really do need to be disciplined in terms of, of holding them back. Um, you know, sometimes the the discipline that some people think comes from motivating your athlete to get out there and train and do train hard and do uh, quality sessions and good sessions. The discipline is actually holding them back. And, you know, you can't train hard if you don't train easy. And, and I think in a lot of, uh, a lot of us, the recovery and the easy days are uh, even more important than the, than the hard sessions and the long sessions, because, uh, unless you're absorbing 100% of the sessions that you're doing, um, you, you're getting up into that red zone where where you are risking overtraining and uh, either you know sort of emotional burnout or or illness or injury. So um, especially you know when when kids are in those you know from from their um, you know sort of early teens through until uh, 16 or, or 17 when they they are still rapidly growing, we really do need to be careful. And it does come down to a duty of care. Yeah, and, and you obviously had uh, these these values instilled in you from a young age. You had the same coach all the way through, Lassie. So obviously, put yeah, on the early. Yeah, absolutely. I was really lucky uh, to to come under under uh, close uh, Pat Clohessy's wing as a. I think I was probably about thirteen or fourteen, and um, and you know Pat. Uh, just had this incredible wealth of experience. You know, he um, he was one of the first Australians to to get a, a US uh, scholarship and went to university at Houston, and uh, and then you know, befriended a lot of the the top New Zealand distance runners of the time, Murray Helberg and Peter Snell, and and was part of you know sort of that whole Arthur Lydia training group, and uh, and he travelled around Europe and and had a, a chance to. To see the, the the follies of the the high intensity um, training blocks and groups that were out there, and uh, and just saw saw the the value of the the long, consistent, slow, steady running that the New Zealanders were were, were going through. Mm. Um, so you know, I was really really fortunate, and Pat always had that long term perspective. Mm. Um, he was always looking not at you know what you did as a junior but really just trying to use that as a as a, an opportunity to lay the foundation for for you as a as a senior to to become you know the best that you could be as a as an adult not just um, as a as a, a junior or a youngster yeah and I think that's that's a great lesson for lots and lots of parents kids and coaches at the moment there's a, there's a lot of pushing too hard too early but that's my opinion um, anyway uh, Early 90s, you were put on as the director of Australian Institute of Sport um, there for about five years. How important is this centralised hub for sports performance in Australia? Would you like to see 
the AIS's role in running reinvented, or do you think our approach is working well enough at the moment? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I was um, coming towards the end of, of my running career and, you know, starting to have a, a series of little niggles and injuries and things and, and was looking for a transition from uh, being a, a professional full-time athlete into a life after sport. And the opportunity to come back and head up the Institute was, um, was uh, provided. And, and it was a, an incredible opportunity and experience for me to, to work not just in, in running and not just in athletics and distance running, but right across the board. And was really fortunate to, uh, to meet and spend time and get to know a lot of amazing coaches uh, across a variety of sports, you know, from swimming and hockey and uh, and tennis and gymnastics and, you know, sort of all of the, the water polo, all of the diversity of, of, uh, of Olympic and, and international sports that the Institute was involved with. Um, and I learned so much from from those, those head coaches, uh, but there was so much in common as well across the sports and, and the attitudes. And I think there was this amazing synergy that um, that fertilized their imagination and their and their knowledge and their experience um, and and you know they socialized on a almost daily basis with each other and shared all sorts of challenges and successes and and mistakes mm-hmm. and um, I think that was one of the great things about what the AIS provided was was the the environment where these these passionate and dedicated and, and amazing coaches could all work together. Uh, and then over the, the top of that, you, you lay the sports science and the sports medical support, which was uh, some of the best in the world. Mm. Um, and, and then, you know, you, 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 you wrap all of that around some amazingly talented young, young athletes. And I think it's just a, it's a pretty simple recipe and formula to, to get great results. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what the AIS did. And not only in terms of um, results on the sporting fields, but, uh, but also it was able to look at trying to find that um, holistic approach and the balance for a lot of athletes. You know, it was compulsory that all athletes on scholarship maintained either a job or, or study um, so the concept of just bludging through life and, and just uh, bludging off your talents uh, was not an option. And I think you know, there are a lot of other dynamics and, and facets that the AIS provided. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think it, it, the, the, the model is still incredibly relevant and I'm, I'm very uh, sad and, and very sorry for a lot of the young, talented athletes that are out there today that they don't have the same opportunity that the AIS provided back through the 80s and the 90s. Um, and the fact that it's been dismantled and there's no athletes on scholarship and the, the funding has really been uh, distributed down through the silos of individual national sporting organisations. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, don't, my, I, I personally don't think that that's the right way to, to go. Um, and I think we'll, you know, history will will prove me correct or prove me wrong. Um, but uh, but that's you know that's my my feeling. Um, and, and but you know then you know you do look at, at what's happening in distance running at the moment, and we're getting incredible success out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know I uh, probably a little bit 
removed to try to understand why. I think, you know, there are some some great squads. And I think, you know, coaches like Nick Bitto and, and stuff have created a uh, almost like a, an AIS type type uh, uh, philosophy or, or a group where these young, talented, dedicated uh, athletes are all feeding off each other and mm. supporting each other. There's a, you know, a, there seems to be a, a really positive and exciting culture in distance yeah. running at the moment. And I think that's, that's part of, uh, of the, the success maybe that we're seeing at the moment. And, um, and that's, you know, sort of exactly what the AIS was, was there to, to mm. do in a, in a very structured way, whereas it seems to be happening in an ad hoc or not an ad hoc way, but uh, uh, just I think we're we're lucky that it's uh, it's it's happening because of the the uh, the depth that we've got there now. Mm. Yeah, certainly, and obviously the the, the group effect around those uh, satellite groups is is a big part of that success. And the AIS was just channeling that group group effect, as you suggested. Um, talking about the, the pieces of the puzzle there. There was a very obvious improvement in international results across many sports, I guess starting with your tenure and leading into the Sydney Games. And the POM saw very similar patterns around the London Games. Uh, how important is funding specifically for Aussie sport and performance? Are we, are we prioritising that enough in 2021? Uh, well, like I said, I'm probably a little bit removed from the, the actual budget allocations and, and stuff, but um, uh, I think... I think there's probably a little bit of a tendency to uh, invest too much into the management and not enough into the actual technical sides. Um, you know, I, I think it's I think it's it's critical that we have the funds to attract the the best uh, coaches uh, and and as I said before, you know, put them alongside the best. Sports scientists, physiologists, biomechanists, um, you know all of the the different psychologists and everything else that you that you need, and um, and then also provide the the sports science and the the sports medical support in there uh, to to help with the with the injuries that are in, inevitably going to to occur. Um, so you can't do that without money, um, you know, and, and certainly you can't create a a long-term sustainable model without actually funding it. Um, you can, you know, you can attract some incredible volunteers um, who who do have amazing talents, and and they will will make their contributions uh, out of their own pocket and, and take time off to travel overseas and to to come into events and provide support. But that's not sustainable in the long term. Um, you know, you, you, you're really talking that um, you know a minimum of five years and and out to ten years to really lay the foundations, and that means that you've got to you've got to provide that support to the young emerging elite athletes. So I think there's one of the, the good things that the AIS did was that it really focused a lot of support into that, um, that sort of 16 to 20 year, 21, 22 year age group. And, and that's where I think a lot of the, the, um, the neural pathways are laid down for technique. Um, it's, it's where a lot of the, the fundamental uh, skeletal muscular uh, development is, is, is put in place. Um, and obviously it's also 
when you can really work with the with the minds and the emotions and the and the beliefs and the attitudes of of, of these young athletes, and if you can if you can instill what you need to to put in uh, during those formative years, um, then the the results will come through down the track as they you know sort of emerge through their their mid twenties and and um, and early thirties as as our our top senior athletes mm, and sportsmen yeah. and sportswomen. Um, so, you know, sort of, I think it's, it's, it is really important to, to have the funds and, and to have the, the long-term commitment and security that is going to be there. And, and if you, if you, you know, you, you're um, putting a lot of funds into the hands of different national sporting organisations, um, I think there's maybe not, not always, but occasionally there's a tendency for the administration to, to, build itself up at the expense of some of the technical support that I think is absolutely critical. And that's, again, one of the things the AIS was able to, to do was to, to um, you know, sort of uh, recruit and pay uh, commensurately with the skills on a world stage uh, that, that were required for Australia to, to provide the support to those young emerging athletes, not just the national and, and senior teams that are out there. And, and, and pull that resource among a number of different sports, which is making financial. Which sense was very well. cost, yeah, yeah, cost effective to to do that to consolidate, and that's you know that's part of what a, a centralised program can do, rather than trying to replicate all of those services in silos across every single sport in Australia. It'd be prohibitively expensive, and um, and and you wouldn't get to the same level of of, uh, of service and, and expertise. Mm, yeah, of course. So at, at the moment in Australia and potentially across the globe, we're seeing massive participation in recreational distance running. How do we translate this participation into the notoriety and money that we see in sports like AFL and rugby league? Why aren't Stu McSwain and Ellie Pashley household names? <laughs> yeah, look, uh, um, good good question. I don't think uh, I don't think it's going to to happen. Um, I mean, we have had household names uh, in in athletics before. Uh, you know, people like Herb Elliott and Ron Clark and Betty Cuthbert, um, and and it is you know it is possible to to do that. But I think the machinery now that the that the club uh, and the team sports, the, the big major professional teams. Um, the the uh, the rugby codes and the soccer now and the and obviously the AFL um, they they've I think created such a, a huge uh, momentum that it's very difficult for for sports like like athletics now to to crack to crack through mm -hmm. and um, it really does create a huge uh, it require a huge commitment to to our superstars and we've got to turn them into into household names you know we we we, we were doing it with sally pearson uh and and you know we all almost need to find ways for for you know uh, for stewie and all of these other great distance runners to get onto onto tv ads and and to be household names and to be able to um you know sort of attract the following mm. um you know as a as an athlete um, you know, you the first time you win a major international race, people will uh, maybe take notice, 
Um, the second time you win, they'll they'll start to to really take interest. The third time they you they'll start to follow you, mm. and then the fourth time they'll become fans. So so it means that you know if you if you're competing on the world stage, then you've got to win at Commonwealth Games, World Championships, Olympic Games, and you've got to do it consistently. Mm. And and the crowds, um, the, the the fans are very fickle. All it takes is one bad performance, and and they'll they'll dump you, and they'll move on to to to, to something else. Mm. So the success and the profile and the publicity and the notoriety of our sports is totally dependent on the on the the superstars, and we have to create those superstars. Uh, and it, I think as a sport, the marketing and the and the promotion of these these young young emerging. Uh, amazing athletes is absolutely critical if we do want to inspire that next generation, not just of participants, and that's important. You know, obviously, do a lot of work in the health space and health and uh, health promotion and, and preventive health care. Uh, I think that's really important. But we also want to attract the, the most talented uh, athletes that we can possibly find and channel them into athletics, mm. and and to do that. Uh, we really do need to sell the sizzle and and get out there and in, inspire the the kids and the parents and the and the coaches to to really um, you know provide those those opportunities and pathways. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And uh, Dick, you you raced the marathon at an astonishing four Olympic Games and ran in front of some huge crowds during those events. How challenging do you think it'll be for our marathoners to run in potentially empty streets in Tokyo later this year? Do you, uh, are you confident it'll go ahead? Yeah, look, I, I think it'll probably go ahead. Um, I think there's there's so much um, there's so much now uh, experience in 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 you know sort of managing lockdowns and bubbles and and we've got you know a lot of other sports um, even on the world stage still still taking place. Um, but I think it is it is probably likely that there won't be crowds, um, and that will probably detract a little bit. Uh, but as an athlete, um, you know, predominantly you race against the person next to you, and you race against yourself. As a distance runner, you know, you're out there racing, and I've raced. You know, we've all we've all had races in empty stands, and I've still run PBs in empty stands. Um, you know, I've I've had had uh, you know my early marathons. Uh, there were there were no spectators. You, you know, maybe you get a couple of family members out on the course, or you have someone at the drink stations or whatever. But it doesn't hold you back. You know, I mean, it, it, it's great in terms of reflecting as an athlete on things like the Olympic Games and 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 recalling the the atmosphere as you run into the stadium and, and, you know, running through huge crowds on the streets and things. Um, but, uh, you know, as an athlete, you, you do whatever you need to do to, to get the job done. Mm. And I, I, I really do hope that uh, our, uh, our Olympic team do have a chance to, to put on the Australian singlet and, and get out there and represent themselves and to, uh, to to fly the Australian flag, and I don't think it really matters too much if there's if there's people in the stands or on the sides of the road. I'm sure that they'll they'll absolutely be so proud to to uh, to get out there and, and run for for themselves and their country. Yeah, 
Yeah, no doubt they'll do anything to get there, I'm sure. And speaking yeah. of one of those uh, marathon hopefuls, I've got a uh, listener question coming from Jack Rayner, actually. He wants to know how fast do you think he has to run the marathon before yourself, Booney, and John Newcomb allow him into the Aussie Sporting Tash Club? <laughs> well, we'll have to we'll have to screen it, I think. And you know, my my moustache has has absolutely changed. I I was reflecting. I used to have the the black, you know, sort of porn star handlebar <laughs> moustache going down there, and I, I I think that's that's pretty much out of vogue now, but. <laughs> He's bringing it back in a big way, Jack. He's doing very well for the Tash Club, that's for sure. <laughs> Mate, um, I want to talk about uh, the Indigenous Marathon Project. Uh, you you got, got it off the ground in 2009, 2010. So there's over a decade of uh, amazing work in that health and athletic space and over 100 graduates of the program that have uh, run the New York Marathon in that time. Is the goal for you still to find a runner for the Olympics or over time have the goalposts changed? No. Yeah, no, look, it's changed completely um, in the very first year, actually. Mm. Um, you know, when I think when I um, was, was confronted or exposed to the, uh, the situation with our, our uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people, um, you know, I'd sort of heard, like everyone has, uh, about the statistics and the numbers and, the, you know, all of the closing the gap stats and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you actually are confronted by it and you, and you get to know the people that it's affecting and, uh, and you see the impact that it has on them and their, their families and their children, um, it breaks your heart and it, it, it upset me immensely. Um, and, and, you know, for, for someone, you know, who has always been such a proud Australian, uh, you know, I was Australian of the year. And as you said, I've represented Australia at four Olympic Games and, um, you know, raced all over the, the world proudly representing Australia. And to be confronted with a situation with our First Nations peoples um, that is an absolute disgrace was, uh, was overpowering. And, and the thing that upset me the most, it wasn't so much the, the grog and the, and the violence and the, and the obesity and the health issues. The thing that upset me the most was the culture of hopelessness. Mm. Um, the people that I met and the families and, and that I spoke to and got to know, a lot of them had, had no hope. Uh, they had no self-respect. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't have any dreams and aspirations because they didn't believe that those sorts of things were possible. Um, and, and then, you know, and from that stems a, a lack of, of pride and self-worth. And if you feel as though you're worthless and you have no value, uh, it's very difficult for you to be motivated to take on any challenges in your life and step up and, and, uh, and, and you know, finish your study because going, going to uni or finishing off your year 12 is hard work, you know. Uh, getting a job, you've got to get up early. You've got to, you know, got to dress properly. You've got to turn up, and you've got to, you've got to work hard. And if you feel as though it's all worthless and 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 you're hopeless, then you won't make an effort to do that. Um, so in that very first year, that was the thing that upset me the most. And and standing on the finish line in Central Park back in in November 2010, when those first four men. 
the, the two Aboriginal fellows from Alice Springs and another one from up in Arnhem Land, a little community called Manangrida, and another guy from uh, Kununurra in the Kimberleys, when they became the first Indigenous Australians to, to finish a major international marathon, and they, their training was interrupted and their background and all that sort of stuff was, was um, really, they should never have, have, uh, have finished. They should probably never have even started. Um, but they, they bounced across the finish line and jumping up and down and had these incredibly, you know, proud, beaming smiles on their faces because they had done something that was incredibly hard and they pushed themselves way beyond what their, their physiology should have allowed them to do. And they drew, drew on something deep inside themselves, on a spirit. Um, and, and they were making themselves proud, but they were also making their family and their community so proud. Mm. And that was when, you know, sort of that first year when, you know, I realised that we, we had the chance to do something which was more important for Australia than just finding the next Olympian. And, and that was really using running and, um, and, and using the marathon to, to instill that self-worth and pride. And obviously, you know, if, if we can reignite a culture of distance running and, and physical activity, which was part of, mm. part of Indigenous life before, before European settlement, mm. um, if we can reignite that long distance running and walking and outdoor physical activity, activity um, we will address a lot of the every single chronic disease you know you, every single chronic disease can be improved and addressed by by being more physically active and and then flowing on from that is also all of the mental health issues as well mm. so so you know all I'm trying to do is to use running and walking and physical activity to reignite a culture that is uh, a behaviour that has been part of Indigenous culture for tens of thousands of years mm. and, and also to create some amazing uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island leaders and, and champions. And just like I was talking about in athletics, you know, we need to create these superstars, these, these uh, champions that the sport can, can pin, pin it itself to what we're, what I'm trying to do through through the foundation is to create indigenous champions, and to showcase their strength and their resilience and their their um, capacity to endure and achieve, and and through that inspire themselves, but also um, inspire other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and and also to demonstrate to to non-indigenous Australians that uh, the statistics. Um, aren't representative of Indigenous culture and Indigenous people. Mm. Uh, there are amazing champions and, and some incredibly passionate, capable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders out there that, that are stepping up and doing incredible things. And we need to, to put them in the spotlight, not just through, through the, the IMP and the, and the programs that the foundations run, but right across the board. You know, there's Indigenous doctors, there's Indigenous pilots, there's Indigenous scientists, there's, you know, in incredible uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people out there. And that's what we should be talking about, not always just focusing on the deficit and the negative, mm -hmm. because we have to find a way for Australia to showcase and uh, be proud of our Indigenous people and our Indigenous culture. And whilst ever we just talk about the deficit and the negative stuff, uh, we'll never embrace it. Because, because, you know, why, why would 
Australia want to embrace uh, the negative aspects. We we need to embrace the positive and the and the, the beauty and the richness of our indigenous culture. Yeah, that's right. I think I think that's spot on. Changing the conversation and, and put a positive spin on that. That's that's incredible. Thank you, Dirk. That's brilliant. And w- will you be heading to New York this year? Is it achievable? No, no, no. No, I mean we didn't we didn't obviously get over there last year. And the whole program still went ahead last year, but it was a um, a virtual a virtual program. Mm. Uh, we still had the squad. We had training camps um, just on Zoom and and online. That was really really very difficult. Um, the education there's a compulsory education that all of the guys last year uh, did a, a cert for in business, and we tried to deliver that online, and that's been incredibly difficult and challenging. Um, and instead of going to New York, we we uh, took them to Alice Springs. And on the same day as New York, it happened to be a full moon. Uh, so we took them outside of Alice Springs, about 15 kilometres outside of Alice Springs on the, the Saturday night. And they ran a, their full marathon in the desert under a full moon uh, through, through midnight with the, the last runner, finishing just as the sun was rising on, on Sunday morning. Wow. So it was a, an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll probably be looking to, to do that again this year. So we'll be going back to Alice Springs in late October. And, uh, and under another full moon, we'll, we'll run another midnight marathon. Oh, mate, that sounds spectacular. I couldn't uh, think of anything better from a symbolic point of view. That's amazing. Um, I've got a, a listener question coming from Mick Hennessy. He said, I love your work with the Deadly Fun Run series. Would you like to see a national Indigenous running championships similar to the Koori knockout in rugby league? Yeah, well, we, we've sort of, we sort of have one. Um, every year we've been heading up to, to Uluru and, uh, and we have our, our national Deadly Fun Run championships. So, so we have, you know, sort of um, uh, deadly running groups or IMF running and walking our, our raw groups uh, right across Australia in about 45 different communities. And so we're putting local people, uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, through coaching accreditation. So they're, they're qualified distance running coaches. Mm-hmm. They organise local fun runs and colour runs and a whole host of running and walking training sessions in their communities. And then each year they'll select their, uh, their champions, their local champions, and we bring them in to, to Uluru. And we have the, the Deadly Fun Run Championships, which is just a little 3K run for the kids and, and a 5K run for the adults. Mm. And, uh, and then in the afternoon, we head out to, to uh, the rock, out to Uluru. And the local, there's a local uh, Aboriginal community at the base of the rock called Mutajulu. And the elders out there host all of the Indigenous uh, teams from right across Australia, from you know up up in far north Queensland, up in the Torres Strait, uh, down through through Melbourne, and and you know right right across Australia, um, and and we have a, a relay run around the base of the rock, which is about ten kilometres. So so that starts and finishes in the community. Uh, it's hosted by the elders and the traditional owners there. Each of the the teams 
bring in a uh, um, a baton, which is a message stick from their from their culture, mm-hmm. and and you know sometimes they're sticks that are painted with different stories, or sometimes they're they're beads that they've used up in the Torres Strait for dancing or uh, different things, and that becomes the relay baton that the team hand to each other as they run around the rock. And then at the end of it, we have a, a, a beautiful handover ceremony where each of the teams come up and present their, their message stick or their baton to the elders, uh, the traditional owners of the land where, where the rock is, is, uh, is located and tell the story with, that's translated into local language uh, and share the incredible rich diversity of our, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island culture. Um, I think, you know, sometimes people maybe don't realise uh, the amazing diversity of Indigenous culture that we have in this country. And, and uh, for us to be able to bring uh, um, members who have descendants of the stolen generation who have been disconnected with their culture and to, to have others coming from really, you know, sort of isolated remote communities up in Arnhem Land or... Uh, on the APY lands that are still so strong in culture. And, uh, and then you've got the Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Island cultures that are so, so very different. And for us to be able to have an event where all of those all come together and they're, and they're, and they're shared with each other, and that is passed over to, uh, you know, if, if Uluru, uh, if, if we have a symbolic uh, place in Australia for our our First Nations people probably is Uluru, and for us to host that that event there is always pretty special. So um, you know we're we're looking to continue to to grow that event. It was we couldn't do it last year because uh, obviously the the communities were all closed down, um, but we're hoping next year to be able to to get back to to uh, the Ayers Rock Resort and the and the Uluru country there and uh, and do that again mm, what an amazing showcase thank goodness for people like yourself there putting it out there it's brilliant um what i quickly touch on deke's health foods um and yeah started up in 2006 why why do you personally benefit from a gluten and grain-free diet Deke? <laughs> well i mean uh for a number of reasons i, I guess um one is self-interest <laughs> um, you know, my my uh, father had his first heart attack when he was forty nine, and um, and he went on after that to run about thirty marathons, um, and ended up passing away in his early seventies halfway through a, a thirty kilometer training run. Um, so I know, you know, I I have a family history of heart disease, um, and and I I believe that there are certain foods that uh, trigger inflammation in our bodies, whether it's, you know, sort of in your knee joints or whether it's in your arteries or in your brain. Um, and some of those, those chemicals are, um, are in high concentrations in, in plants and especially in the grains. So gluten is, is one of these, these lectin proteins that, that, uh, that wheat uses to protect itself from moles and fungi and, and, and predators. Um, but, but all of these lectin proteins are in very high concentrations in rice and corn and barley and oats and all of the grains. So all of the grains are basically, uh, they're monocrops. 
mm. and like a pine forest, you know, nothing else grows in a pine, a pine forest, nothing else grows in a wheat field. Uh, so these lectin chemicals are really good at, at, uh, at killing any of the, the bacteria and molds and things. And they allow wheat and rice and, and corn to be stored in silos for a huge periods of time without it going moldy and going off. And our food scientists have actually increased the, the toxicity of some of these natural lectin proteins because it's good for farming. It actually increases the yields. They can get more density from their crops. Uh, the 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 uh, the grains can be stored longer. Um, so so our wonderful food scientists have, have been very good in, at, at supporting the industry. But but uh, there's a flow-on effect if if you have any sort of uh, comp compromised immune system. So for me, I, I know my, my immune system is, uh, you know, high risk of heart disease. So, so I don't want to have anything which is going to uh, trigger any inflammatory response in my, in my arteries and, and through my body. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that uh, through the other partner in the business who's a clinical biologist that works uh, every day with people who are struggling and suffering from uh, some amazing and horrific, everything from cancer through to, to Crohn's disease, to arthritis, to, you know, skin rashes and headaches and all sorts of things that uh, these people are, are struggling with their immune function. Mm. Eliminating grains completely unloads your immune system and it takes the pressure off it so that it can then focus on the, on the viruses and the, and, the, and the bugs that we're all exposed to. And, and it reduces the, the body's, um, the body's uh, defense system and, and inflammatory response. So, so you know, I, I have a, a, a personal vested interest for my own, my own health and well-being. Um, and then also, I, I really enjoy being able to help people who, who are also struggling with their, with their health. And, uh, you know, we, we've had, the, the business has gone through a number of different, uh, you know, formations. We've had cafes and restaurants and, and now we're just focusing on the, on the wholesaling and the retail mail order business. Um, but, you know, I'll forever remember when we had our, our little cafe here and, and people would come down from Sydney. They'd drive down from Sydney and they'd buy up all their food and they'd have lunch. And, and there was this one, one young uh, young girl, about a 13 or 14 year old girl who, who had come down with her parents and, uh, and, and she's, you know, we had this uh, display case of foods of sausage rolls and, and, uh, and pies and, and sweets, you know, sort of uh, chocolate eclairs and, and lamingtons and all sorts of different things. And, um, and the little girl was so used to being on this restricted diet. And mm. she said to her mum, you know, which, what foods can I eat? And the mum said, well, this is all 100% grain-free. You can eat anything you want. And the little girls just started crying. You know, she, she'd never, you know, never in her life been somewhere where she could just have a free choice of whatever she wanted to eat for her. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of us take for granted um, the, the struggle that, uh, that a lot of other people are going through on a day-to-day -day basis when, you know, if you can't eat the staple foods of just bread uh, or pasta or pizza bases or, or things, 
um, then you know uh, uh, life can be can be pretty challenging, and life is hard enough as it is without making it any harder. That's so right. we're trying to make life a little bit easier for people who who probably don't have um, you know the, the same options that a lot of other people have. Yeah, it's fantastic. Once again, really admirable stuff, and, and certainly the more we know about the gut, the more we understand that it it uh, has so many flow-on effects, like you say. So. Yeah, it's certainly uh, a great pathway to be on. Now, yeah, well, we've, we've never we've never really, you know, um, you know, for ten thousand years, only ten thousand years, man has has been farming, hmm. uh, and predominantly we've been hunters and gatherers, and hunters and gatherers, and that's you know, sort of this ancestral diet and lifestyle that I try to follow is, you know, I try to move as much as I can. I try to huff and puff, and I, I'm down doing a lot of a lot of uh, strength work and a little bit of martial arts and a lot of other things to, to keep my body moving uh, like, like our ancestors used to have to do. And I'm trying to eat like our ancestors ate. So eating, you know, predominantly meat and, and fats and uh, eggs and nuts and seeds um, and very, very little sugar and, and uh, reduce carbohydrate because those things weren't available to us mm. as they are today. Mm. Uh, but our, you know, our, our cravings for salt and for sugar and for fat have, have um, been able to be manipulated by the food industry to create all of these foods that, that make us salivate. Mm. But uh, there is a, a health consequence whether it be you know through insulin resistance or through heart disease or through Alzheimer's and um, and mental health emotions, all of these things. So trying to go back and living uh, living in a modern way and still accessing and using all of the wonderful technology that we have at our disposal, but trying to have the fundamental elements of of the way we evolve and and. Um, the, the, you know, the way our ancestors used to live for hundreds of thousands of years, not just the last 10,000 years. Yeah, we certainly haven't uh, evolved a great deal in the last 10,000 years. So I think it's better to go a little bit further back than that. Yep, yep. Now, um, you've, you've said, and I quote, to break the Australian record requires an athlete with a number of very specific attributes. Firstly, they need the right physiology and ability. Secondly, they need to avoid injury. And thirdly, they need to be tough and committed enough to go overseas and race like buggery. Now, <laughs> what of those aspects are we missing that your Aussie marathon record hasn't been beaten since the 80s? Yeah, look, I, it's, um, I'm, I'm pretty staggered. Maybe, maybe uh, carbon fibre plated shoes will make the difference. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a sec. I think that's an aside, but yeah. Uh, is there anything else there? Free super shoes. Yeah, look, I, I think I think it's getting closer. Uh, you know, I, I think the the wonderful um, you know resurgence and like you know the 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 culture and the the buzz that we're getting in distance running at the moment is um, is setting setting the the grounds for for someone to to come out and and, and break my my uh, my national record. Um, and it's well and truly overdue. You know, I think um, the, the talent is there. You know, the, these guys are running so much faster than what I ever ran over 5K and, and, and 10K. And I think if they can um, do the mileage, I mean, I, you know, I used to train pretty hard. 
Um, you know, I used to do pretty significant volumes, you know, 220 to 240K a week, um, you know, training twice a day, seven days a week, um, you know, 35K run every Sunday over the hills around Stromlo here and another 30K run on a Wednesday on the flat, um, you know, and then, you know, hill sessions and track sessions. So, you know, I, I, I trained hard all the time. And I think I was robust enough to be able to to uh, sustain without major major interruption through injury. Mm. So you know you certainly have to train hard. Um, and and you know it's I, I think you know I think we're getting close. You know I, I think in the next the next few years we're we're going to see someone come out and smash um, and smash my national record and it'll be it'll be great and I'll you know be so proud to to see. Aussies back up running sub two eight. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. I guess back to that uh, that talent question. Are, are we finding the most talented runners, or are they being potentially poached by AFL, or are they at home playing video games? Are we, are we finding the best people? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I I hope that um, you know we've got a we need a system in place. Uh, and that system used to be the club, the club structure. Uh, you know, when I was when I was coming up, when I was a, a young kid, I remember going down to Melbourne Uni, and I, you know, used to run for the Old Zavarians, and you know, I was like 14, 15, and 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 running for the club, and running in multiple events to get points for for the the, the pennant and the series. And I'd I'd you know sort of sit on the periphery of the senior athletes. And and I just you know sort of hang off there every word and I I you know sort of I was too shy and too quiet to 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 get involved but I'd just be listening to them as they you know spoke about their training and their racing and and whatever and and I think you know we we need to to have the system where the young kids are exposed uh, in a in a close way where they're sort of almost um, unconsciously mentored. By by the senior the senior athletes, um, and and that used to be the club system. It's probably maybe a little bit the training groups that are, are developing now. The the running squads, like you know, my brother Anthony's got a great running squad down in in Melbourne, and and they're, they're, you're getting some of the young kids coming along and and hanging out and doing the the training and and, and learning from some of the older older runners. Mm. Um, but we we need that because we need to. We need to inspire and we need to capture those young kids before they get distracted by either the video games or by uh, the the other you know AFL codes and and whatever. Um, so you know we've got to you know we've really got to have a, a pretty sophisticated uh, recruiting process to to get them young and and keep them involved and uh, and then to to train them up and you know we've always there's always um, there's always been competition between sports for the most talented mm. and maybe, you know, marathon runners and distance runners uh, aren't probably, don't probably have the same attributes, physiological attributes that a lot of team sports are looking for. Mm. So, so, you know, a lot of distance runners are the rejects from, from the, the AFL and everything because we're too slow um, and, and don't have that, you know, speed, acceleration, agility, hand-eye coordination so we need to go out there and try to recruit that second tier of, of AFL players 
uh, the ones that aren't good enough necessarily to make it. And especially the difference, uh, it's maybe a slightly different uh, personality also from a team sport to an individual sport. You know, we can, we can have teams of people and training groups and, and, and packs and, and, and stuff around us to support each other. But we also uh, need to find that individual that really uh, wants to achieve to prove themselves to either prove themselves to themselves or to prove themselves to, to others. And, um, and it's a slightly different personality, I think, sometimes to, to people who get attracted to the team sports. Yeah, so I yeah. think there's still, there's still the potential for us to, to, um, to find them. We've got to get them early. We've got to, we've got to you know, grab them. We've got to nurture them. We've got to develop them. And, uh, and then hopefully you know, provide those opportunities for them to, to go all the way. Yeah, fingers crossed again. Mate, uh, one more quote from yourself uh, about the marathon. If you feel bad at 10 miles, you're in trouble. If you feel bad at 20 miles, you're normal. If you don't feel bad at 26 miles, you're abnormal. So what did you say to yourself when the going got tough and how did you get through it when you felt bad? Well, look, it's, it's, um, it's a positive reinforcement, um, you know, the power of the, power of the positive. Uh, and you know our mind is an incredibly uh, an incredibly powerful tool for us to get the best out of our body and and to train the mind to do that uh, it does really require a, a strength to be able to to disassociate to, to an extent but then also to uh, just purely focus on on, the, the self-belief and the positive messages. You know, we almost have those two little voices, mm. you know, one telling you you can't do it, another one telling you you can do it. And and when you you are struggling out there, you know, the one that's telling you keep on going, you know, you can do it, uh, is the one that we need to, to amplify and ramp up and we need to find ways to get rid of that negative voice. Uh, you know, we are our worst critics. And and you know, but we need to to rely very heavily on on our uh, on the strength of of the the positive that we have within ourselves. Mm. And um, you know, it, it is going to get hard. Um, and that's the beauty of the marathon. You know, anyone who goes to the starting line of a marathon knows that they're going to be tested. Uh, they're deliberately doing a marathon because they want to push themselves. They want to get to that point where their body is, is telling them that it can't go on and they, the body's telling their, themselves that they've got to quit and stop, but the mind has to stay strong. And, and it's a, a wonderful metaphor for so much in our life. Uh, you know, the marathon is this mystical event in so many ways, going all the way back to, to Pheidippides. Um, and, and the history the history of the marathon is just um, an amazing thing to, to try to fathom and understand. And I think it, it is really, um, it, it's an event which, which is a little bit mystical uh, because, because it doesn't make sense. You know, we're deliberately going out there to run, you know, 42.195 kilometres, you know, what, a, what a, a crazy distance. We know at about 30 to 35 kilometres, we're going to be absolutely depleted and, and, and busted and we're going to hit this famous wall. And, and that's when the marathon starts. You know, the marathon is that battle between yourself 
between those two voices of pushing and, and keeping on going and backing off and, and, and giving up. And we can't give up. You know, we, as, as, a, as an individual, you can never give up. You have to keep on uh, believing that you can always keep on putting one foot in front of the other, regardless of how tough life come, becomes or how difficult things are around yourself. But then, you know, you, you also do the preparation. You'd be an absolute idiot to go to the starting line of a marathon without training for it. And you should never disrespect a marathon. And, and the training and the preparation are all of the other things in our life that we need to, to put in place to help us get through the difficult things that, uh, that we are going to, I can guarantee all of us in life are going to be knocked down and we're going to feel as though, you know, we've hit the wall. But we've got to we've got to find a way to to get up and push forward and uh, and you know having having your friends and your your close family around you to support you through those difficult times, all those sorts of things are, are really critical and they they all are weaved into this event called the marathon. Yeah, it's a uh, brutal few k's the wall, unfortunately, but we get through. We get through. <laughs> And I've got a couple of listener questions come in from a bunch of people. So this has come from Jake Shaw. One of my most prized possessions as a kid was my deep Duna cover and pillow cover. Please tell me you have a few left over in store somewhere. I'll pay anything. Unfortunately, I don't even think I ever saw it. <laughs> well, I'll have to send us a photo. Was it strange seeing your image on products and splashed across billboards back in the day, Dick? Oh, no, look, it was, um, you know, I, I think as a professional athlete, um, you, you know, you, you, you divorce yourself or you separate yourself from, from the, the hype um, and, you, you know, you focus, I used to focus on what I knew I needed to do. That was, you know, training every day, getting the rest I needed, um, you know, having a, a really uh, well-structured and strategic racing and, and uh, competition program and training blocks and the, the international travel and all the things that I knew I needed to do to, to be the best athlete that I could possibly be. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the accolades of the stories in the paper and the, and the Duna covers and all that other stuff, they're, they're, they're very, I mean, they're nice and, and you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, I, I wasn't out there for the Duna covers. I was out, out there for, for medals and, and personal bests. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I wanted to look back and be proud of, of having given absolutely everything I did to, to my career. You know, I, I, can't, I came away without, without an Olympic medal. Uh, and, and that's something which, you know, I, I regret and, and uh, look back on. Um, and, but... Uh, I know that I did everything that I possibly could, and that's all that anyone can ever expect of themselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. And along a similar line, this is coming from Peter Hadfield, funnily enough. Uh, asks, how did you find juggling your commercial and sponsorship commitments with your training schedule? Yeah, look, it was, it was, that was a real challenge, um, especially here in Australia. Uh, you know, I ended up, um, I ended up, doing a, a huge amount if, you know if I was training training twice a day every day and absolutely smashing myself uh, five days a week uh, it doesn't leave a lot of time to be traveling around the country doing endorsements and, and commercials and advertising and all of the other things but um, uh, TV ads were good 
because because they they shoot them all in like a day or so. So you can, you know, and then and then it's just a campaign that rolls out. So it doesn't take a, a huge amount of, of your your time away from your, your training. Um, but I still found it really hard. And that was one of the reasons why after the Moscow Olympics in 84, where I finished fifth, um, I relocated to the US and and moved to, you know, knew I had to get away from Australia for a period of time because I was getting fried. I was getting burnt out by all of the stuff that was going on. I was, you know, doing hundreds of flights um, a year domestically and then also trying to get overseas to the Northern Hemisphere at least a couple of times a year. Um, so, so that was one of the reasons why... Uh, my family and I relocated to Boulder in Colorado. We set up a home base there and I was relatively anonymous and I was able to, to focus on my training and get the rest and to, to shift away from the hype here in Australia. Um, and, and it also just gave me the break that when I did come back for, you know, I'd come back for summer here in Australia and, and then, you know, sort of head back over to, to the U.S., uh, for, for summer over there. Um, but I, I seem to be able to emotionally manage sort of the five or six months here in Australia after having a break overseas. So uh, so that, that was pretty much how I managed it. But it is, you know, that time management is hard. You know, you've got agents that their job is to, to commercialise you um, and, and you need to do, to do that. And then you've got your coach um that is really looking to try to maximise your, your physiological performance and your psychological performance mm. and trying to find that balance is is uh, is not easy sometimes. Oh, I'm sure. Some serious demands on your time. Uh, the old man also wants to know if he kept you awake with his snoring in the shoebox you all stayed in in Los <laughs> Angeles. Four in a room, he said. Uh, you could just about reach each other on the next bunk across. Yeah, yeah, we we had some great times, and that's that's one of the, the wonderful things about the Olympics. Hey, you know, being part of the national team, uh, there may not be crowds, but uh, there'll probably be someone someone in the bed next to you, about an arm's length away, snoring their head off like Hattie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. I'll let him know. Uh, this is coming from uh, Sean from Ranella. He says, "Take four percent off a two oh seven marathon, and you get a two oh two. Do you think that would have been the reality had you run the Boston Marathon in a pair of super shoes? <laughs> we'll never know, will we? Yeah. Right. We won't. The 4%, the numbers don't lie there, Deke. So. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to put a little asterisk against against the, the world records. <laughs> and I'm happy to give you a 202. So how does someone who set the world record in a pair of very basic shoes react to the ton of world and national records set in the last couple of years since the inception of the super shoes? Well, look, yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously been pretty topical for the last year or, or two. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm probably philosophical now. Um, you know, I, I think I think we have to accept and expect that technology is going to to play a big role in terms of uh, sporting performance. Um, the thing that I probably would get uh, a bit cranky about is if the technology is is limited to only certain certain athletes on the starting line. Um, you know, I, I think unlike say, you know, when track track and field or track went from 
uh, grass track to cinders and then cinders to rubberized bitumen and rubberized bitumen to, to these rubber tracks, uh, there was a, a significant um, benefit for, for the, 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 the world records and the athletes. Um, but the difference there is that everyone is, is running on the same track. Um, and it's not really fair if I don't, I don't think it's fair if, um, if intellectual property and patented technology uh, prevents some athletes from accessing the, the same benefit. Um, it seems to be now that, that all of the shoe companies are, are, are getting, you know, jumping on the bandwagon and they're starting to, to come up with, with similar technology that is providing a similar benefit. Um, and in that case, you know, as long as as long as every athlete on the starting line um, has a, a fair a fair crack, knowing that they're competing on a you know relatively even playing field, then then let, let's just get on and, and see how fast they can run. Yeah, love it, love the attitude. Have you uh, you got in a pair yourself, Dee? No, no, I'm thinking of of actually. Uh, I, I remember talking to Monas and I asked Monas a, a while ago. I said, mate, what about these shoes? And he said, oh yeah, I hate them. I hate running him, but I, but I run I run three seconds a kilometre faster. <laughs> That's all you need to know, isn't it? There you go. Yeah. On, on a similar technology topic, this is coming from Andrew Lloyd, Lloydy. So obviously an amazing product like Goo wasn't around in your time. What did race, nutrition and hydration look like for your marathons? Yeah, uh, good on you, Lloydy. Um, yeah, look, um, it was very different, wasn't it? I mean, you know, we we had uh, when I first started running marathons, there was debate around whether marathon runners even needed to drink. So, so there were, there were runners that just ran the whole marathon without having a drink. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, you know, sort of the water stations, and and uh, and then they went into the electrolyte drinks and stuff. Um, and and for me, you know, like uh, I was fortunate to have access to uh, the sports science unit here with Dick Telford, and and we did a or he did a fair amount of research, and I ended up uh, experimenting with this um, this uh, long long glucose polymer of uh, uh, a long polymer uh, of glucose that they used in intensive care units in ICU. ICU uh, units with their patients mm. to keep their energy levels up, and it was this uh, polycose was more rapidly absorbed through through the gut, uh, so produced better energy. So you know we experimented with that, and then you know I, I sort of just went back to to having a little bit of glucose uh, that I'd go down to Woolies and buy those little jars of, of glucose syrup, and then mix it up uh, to different concentrations based on the the, the condition. So if it was really humid uh, and I knew that I'd be sweating a lot, then I'd add a little bit more electrolyte. Um, if it was cool conditions and I didn't feel as though I'd be perspiring or losing as much electrolyte, then I'd have focus a little bit more on the, on the glucose concentration. Um, and, you know, as elite athletes, you know, every five kilometers, we had our, our drink stations um, and I'd vary the, the mixture uh, through through each of those different stations based on again you know sort of uh, the energy levels and and the conditions um, it was it was really challenging for me um, at the championship events at the major Olympics and Commonwealth Games and world championships because they're all summer summer events mm. and as a big fella uh, I my you know my I had a, a, a much larger 
uh, muscle mass to surface area. So my surface area was always a little bit smaller in proportion to, to my, my mass compared to some of the skinny little little Africans and some of the other athletes. Mm. Uh, so so I, I always tended to overheat and struggled a little bit running in the in the humidity and the and the hot races that was uh, really challenging. So you know I tried to compensate a little bit with um, uh, with different different you know drinks and electrolytes. So I tried to do everything that I could. Um, you know, goose. You know, I would have loved to have had access to goose back then. And I and I think you know goose and chews and all those things. I think are, are, are wonderful. Um, a wonderful, another, you know, little bit of technology that we've been able to provide to make running more enjoyable for, for people because it's, it's hard enough as it is. Uh, training's hard, running's hard, but uh, as, uh, as Kip Jogi said, you know, running is a beautiful thing. Everyone should do it. Mm, exactly. Uh, and I guess in terms of that simplicity, this is coming from the red back. Uh, are people too focused on GPS and Strava these days and losing their ability to feel their effort? Are we um, too focused on heart rates and the numbers? Should we just get out and run? Yeah, look, um, I think some people do get way, way too obsessed with, you know, sort of uh, running that last 10 metres uh, to make sure that you click over to to, to five kilometers and you don't stop at 4.95 kilometers. Mm. I mean, it doesn't, you know, I hate to tell them, it doesn't really make that much difference. And it was funny, you know, sort of a lot of the, when, when the GPS watches and everything came out, um, we had that whole generation after us going and running the same loops and stuff that we used to, to do. And what we used to call an 18 miler or a 21 miler or something, they come back and said, oh, that was only 17 and a half miles or it was only 20 and a half miles. You know, that, you know, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really make that much difference. Um, so, so, um, you know, don't, yeah, don't, don't have the tail wag the dog. Uh, you know, technology is is wonderful, mm. uh, but but don't don't become obsessed with it. Use it as a as a tool, and and you know, still if you if you your Strava uh, or your your Garmin or your your, your GPS watch, uh, the battery goes flat. Keep running. Mm, that's right. <laughs> that's very good advice, Dave. Very good. I've got uh, one final listener question. It's coming from uh, Brad Glennon. He wants to know what it's like being the fastest brother in your family. <laughs> Our brothers are always always very supportive, but always very competitive. I think, like every 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 family, hey. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's universal. Well, um, yeah. mate, th thank you so much for your time. I, I encourage our listeners to get on to the Indigenous Marathon Foundation website and have a look. Potentially donate some money to a great cause. Uh, certainly jump on Deke's Health Foods and grab yourself some gluten-free snacks and treats. Some pretty amazing stuff yeah, on absolutely. there. Absolutely. I have yeah, a look. And, um, yeah, we, we, a real honour and pleasure to chat to you, Deke. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, mate. It's a pleasure. And, uh, and you know, you, your father and I are great mates. I've got so much respect and admiration for, for him and everything that he's done. Um, so really nice to be able to, to link up with you. Oh, mate, I'm sure the feeling's very mutual. Thank you so much, Steve. Have a wonderful day. Cheers, mate. All right, Cheers. bye.